Open your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at one verse here as an introduction to the lesson. I remember several years ago, actually it's been quite a number of years ago, when I first started studying the books of prophecy, one of the, um, one of the great blessings of studying these Old Testament books was the realization that much of what the prophets wrote pointed to the future, and not just pointed to the future, but it pointed to our future. The prophet's message was a, a message of judgment. The prophets were sent to turn the hearts of the people back to God. They had sinned grievously. They were drifting away from God, and God wanted to bring them back. Many remained faithful. Many chose to remain unfaithful, and as a result of that, they were taken into first Assyrian captivity and then Babylonian captivity. But in the midst of all that, there were these promises of a better future. And there were, were glimpses into what the kingdom to be established was to be. And one of the prophecies that was made concerning that kingdom that I think carries so much power is found in the second chapter of the book of Daniel. And in this particular chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and then Daniel interprets that dream. And I won't go into all the details, but what we see in this dream for the benefit of Nebuchadnezzar and the benefit of those who would live afterwards is that God was in control, and he was bringing about the rise and fall of nations. But he also pointed to a kingdom that was very special. We read about that kingdom in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of those kings, if you go back and look at the succession, what you see is that this is during the time of the Roman Empire, which was the time of Christ and the time of the apostles and the time of the establishment of the church. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. This kingdom is going to be different. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Did you realize that the kingdom of which Daniel spoke is the kingdom of which you and I are members. It's the kingdom that was established on the day of Pentecost with the preaching of the gospel. Now, when you read those words, we fast forward, we go 2,000 years beyond the first century, we come to our time, here we are. Here we are. What do we see? What do we see among churches of Christ? I'm not going to make an assessment of what we see. But what I want to propose to you this morning is that this is what we should see. What we should see whenever we think about our role as a member of the local church. What we should see is this kingdom which will never be destroyed. A kingdom that will not be left for another people and that will crush and put an end 
to all kingdoms and a kingdom that itself will endure forever. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You and I are members of that kingdom. I saw a statement not too long ago that uh, prompted my thinking along these lines. The statement was how to make the church great. Well, I, I think that's a good sentiment, but I think what we need to realize is that it's not our place to make the church great. The church is the kingdom, and it's the greatest kingdom that has ever existed, and for that reason, it's already great because it is a, it is a part of God's plan. But I do believe, I myself, and I want you to take this upon yourself, I need to be asking the question, can I live in a manner consistent, consistent with the greatness of this kingdom? Can I demonstrate by the things that I say, the things that I do, the way I interact with brothers and sisters in Christ, and even the way I interact with the world? Can I make it obvious that I acknowledge the greatness of this kingdom and that I want to do everything within my power to bring glory to God in that kingdom. I want to suggest to you there are certain things that we can be doing, both individually and collectively, to this end. First, we can engage in intentional efforts. I remember years ago, this statement stuck with me. It was a motivational speaker. And he made the statement that in life... We don't aspire to being a wandering generality, just meandering through life. Think about the word meander, that's normally applied to rivers. If you look at rivers from a height, typically they, they meander because of the erosion and the force of the water and things of that sort. But what that simply meant was that in life, we need to make intentional efforts toward some, some bigger goal or bigger accomplishment than just what typically is seen as the little things in life. And when I look at what, what God has revealed in his word, I see intentional efforts. God does nothing without purpose. God does nothing without a plan. You go to the book of Acts, and I'll just give you an example here, starting in Acts chapter 1. This is an outline of the book of Acts, but it is also a definition of God's intentional effort for the spread of the gospel. You know that Jesus told his apostles to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, which they did. But then Jesus also said to them prior to his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, if you were to take a map of the world, what you would see is that it began in Jerusalem. Judea was the area surrounding Jerusalem, and then Samaria was to the north, and that is exactly the plan that was followed 
by the early disciples as they preached the gospel. And eventually the church was persecuted in Jerusalem. It was dispersed and they all went back to their homes and the gospel then was in fact preached throughout the world. But that was a, that was a, a, a plan that God had in his mind. And they were executing the plan with, with a desire to expend effort intentionally. We see this also in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts in verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set them apart. I've called them to this work. And then the missionary journeys began. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, we see the intentional effort again in the statement that Paul made to Timothy that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. What are you doing? Individually, what are you doing that points to some intentional effort that is consistent with the greatness of this kingdom? What are we doing as a church? You know, elders have a tremendous responsibility, a tremendous burden to make plans and, and to challenge and motivate and to encourage congregations not to stand still, but to be moving forward. It's the greatest kingdom. The second thing I see, and this is very closely related to the first point, and that is purpose. What is God's eternal goal? In Acts, the 26th chapter, when Paul was relating his conversion experience and telling what he did and what Christ did and what Christ called him to do, notice the words and notice the purpose that God had for him in Acts 26, beginning at verse 16. But get up and stand on your feet, Jesus speaking to Paul, Saul, who would become Paul, for this purpose, this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom, whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, when you read those words, here's something I want us to think about. So often when we see problems in churches, the problem really is we have forgotten our purpose. We're, we're acting down here instead of seeing the greatness of this kingdom as presented in the books of prophecy as revealed by God and his word. Look again at the purpose that Christ called Paul for. He said, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. That's our purpose. We are to be encouraging. We are to be building up. We are to be leading others in the right path. We are not to be destroying faith. We are to be building faith. Now I want to go to Clay's favorite place. Ephesians chapter 3. I guess yours was chapter 2. 
We'll move one chapter over. Listen to these words. Think about the fact that you're a member of this kingdom that is the greatest kingdom. Listen to these words. Ephesians 3 and verse 9. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Let's make this local. What do the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places see when they look at this church? When they see the way we conduct ourselves, the way we interact with one another, the, the planning and the purpose and the mission, the intentional effort, what do the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places see? You see, if we're going to act in a manner consistent with the greatness of this kingdom, then we're going to understand that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known through the church. And then in verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was an eternal purpose. Wow, what a great kingdom. What a great kingdom. I also see acting in a manner consistent with the greatness of this kingdom is praise that is aimed at bringing glory to God. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, and this, I guess, is one of my favorites. Of course, it seems like every time I open the Bible, I find a new favorite. But in the second chapter of the book of Acts, we read about the life of the early church, the early disciples. And, and I challenge myself to think, as I read through the book of Acts, and as I read through the different epistles, and I see the life of the early church and the ideal that God has for us, I ask myself the question, what am I doing? What am I doing to bring about this plan, this purpose, and this praise that is to the glory of God? In verse 30, 43 of Acts, the second chapter, after the 3,000 obeyed the gospel, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. When's the last time you felt that? You know, we want, to take, we want to take feeling out of worship. When's the last time you felt or experienced awe in your worship? And many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I want to tell you, one aspect of New Testament Christianity that is woefully missing in our time is this one. We talked about this in our Wednesday night class on the qualifications of elders and deacons. Why is it that congregations are not close? Why is it that we, we're not of one heart and one soul? Why is it that we so easily get sideways with one another? It's because we're not together. We're not one. We're not focused. We have a, we have a church-centered religion. We have a religion that is focused on what takes place in a, a church building. 
Where was their religion? Where did the rubber meet the road so far as New Testament Christianity? Taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. It's easy to praise God. When you see God being glorified through the individual activities of his chosen saints. It's easy to come to an assembly and to feel a sense of awe when people in that kingdom recognize its greatness and act consistent with that recognition. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, Peter wrote, whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Is your life glorifying God? Is your behavior glorifying God? If it isn't, we've got to fly back up to 50,000 feet and we've got to see the greatness of His kingdom. We also see activity which is consistent with the greatness of this kingdom, preaching of the gospel. Preaching that is Bible-centered. I want you to go with me to the book of Isaiah. Here's another statement. And you'll see a specific reference to the establishment of God's church on the day of Pentecost. Again, consistent with that outline or that pattern that we just noted earlier in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where it began at Jerusalem. Now, what will come about, verse 2, Isaiah chapter 2, in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. You see God's picture? You see God's vision? And many peoples will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. People are going to say, let's get together. Let's go up to that great kingdom to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's God's vision. We need to be preaching. We need to be teaching. We need to be studying. We need to be bringing people to a, a greater knowledge of the scriptures. And I believe there's desire in the hearts of our Bible class teachers to do that. I believe there's desire in the hearts of our adult Bible class teachers and our, our, our children class teachers to teach the ways of God. And as we teach the ways of God, God's vision for the kingdom will be realized. And we will be acting in a manner consistent with the greatness of that kingdom. I appreciate a statement that Paul made to Timothy. Very, very simple. We studied this recently in our study of 1 Timothy about the goal of our instruction. What is it? When we come together and we study 
and we spend time together in our Bible classes, what is the goal of our instruction? Why are we here? The goal of our instruction is love. It's love. It's love for everybody. It's not just the love that you practice that, in, that stops at your front door. It's love for others in your world. It is active goodwill that seeks always the best interest of others from a pure heart. Pure hearts. Sincere love comes from a pure heart. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about my agenda. It's not about your agenda. It's about God's. And a good conscience. And a sincere faith. Are we building that into our teaching? Into our preaching? Preparation. If we're going to act in a manner consistent with the greatness of this kingdom, we're going to have to realize something. And that is, it is not going to be easy. The enemy is always there. Our adversary is always going to be working. He is always going to be active. He's always going to be destroying the faith of others in any way that he possibly can. You read the book of Revelation you go to the 12th chapter and you see after the, after the resurrection of Jesus that that great red dragon went out to make war with the children. Well, that's the church. In Acts, the second chapter, when Peter was preaching and expounding upon Old Testament Scripture and teaching them that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy, he quoted a prophecy, a statement made by David, but in verse 35, here's an interesting statement. Well, let's look at verse 34. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And that's where Jesus is now. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. These enemies will be there until the Lord returns. Can't we open our minds up and see when these things are happening? In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, Paul wrote about this spiritual warfare. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Satan's schemes are strong. He's not a dummy. He's very intelligent. He knows your weakness. He knows the weakness of every church. And he'll do everything within his power to thwart whatever efforts we are making to move forward. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Satan's working on my voice right now. 
I'm on the back end of this, by the way. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I read through that quickly. That would be a good series, wouldn't it? The, the armor of God. Are you ready? Are you prepared for the battle that lies ahead? And this is the, one of the things that we need to emphasize to our children. Satan's going to always be at work in your life. Once you become a child of God, you are on the devil's radar screen. And he'll do everything he possibly can to destroy your faith. That's why we need to encourage our young disciples. They are the at-risk group. You remember the sermon I preached on that several months ago? David Banning preached that lesson at 4th Street. We need to be building up faith. And then finally, we need to be practicing engaged in consistent efforts which are consistent with our acknowledgement of the greatness of this kingdom. You can't help but be sobered by Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when Paul wrote, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Well, he wasn't a young disciple. He wasn't in that at-risk category. <clears throat> Satan's never going to stop. He'll attack from a different angle as you grow older. But as you grow older, consistency becomes even more important. You don't want to be disqualified. And it can happen to any of us. It can happen to anybody. And it is for that reason, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, as Paul brought his dissertation on the resurrection to a close, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, <clears throat> be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. You're going to be beat down. Life will beat you down. You'll be discouraged. But just don't give up. Just keep working. Be steadfast. Be a rock. Be a rock. Be immovable. Whatever it is that the Lord wants you to do, your toil is not in vain. Sometimes it feels that way. But it's not. We are members of the greatest kingdom. Let's embrace that. Let's live that. If you're here this morning and you want to be a member of that kingdom, we're going to sing a song now to encourage you to confess your faith, to repent of your sins, and to be baptized to have those sins washed away. If you're subject to the call, please come as we stand and sing.